So look with me. Judges 14, verse number 10. Speaking of Samson, it says, His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. Uh, For so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of this feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, and here's the riddle, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Now listen to this politically incorrect statement. And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. He's talking about his wife. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. So, when we're studying the story of Samson over these weeks, is anybody willing to come into agreement with me yet that his life is bewildering? I I promise you, I've known Samson my entire Christian life and even before my conversion, but I had never taken the time to just parse out everything about his life And even in reading this again, I've studied this passage right here for two weeks. And reading it tonight, I'm like, Samson, you were messed up, man. And so I know I keep saying that, but it's because it's true. And so, again, his story reminds us of what God can do with messed up people. Now, I'm sure none of you ever consider yourself to be messed up. But theoretically, if you happen to have some tilted places in your heart, some out-of-alignment uh, components of your walk with God. If, if you have one of those areas in your life where here you are a decade later and you still don't feel like you've progressed as far as you had hoped, there's hope for you. There, there, there's possibility for you. God's not given up on you. He's not walking away from you. And as a matter of fact, God is so big that even in your tilted ways or your misaligned components of your life, God is so big that he can still fulfill his destiny for your life if you will come to that place, which Samson eventually comes to at the end of his life, where you will surrender it all to him. And so let's go a little bit through this strange passage of reckless behavior 
in Samson and his friend's life, and even in his wife's life, let's look at the results of recklessness. This is not going to be um, overly encouraging at the beginning, but at the end, as always in these messages on his life, we're going to see God be God, and you will be encouraged. Let's start out right where we began, back up in verse number 10. Let's go through verse number 13, and let's let the scriptures highlight what I'm going to call the folly of young men. We have some young men in the room. I'll let you determine if you consider yourself not young anymore, but I know we have some that are definitely qualified as young men in the room, and let me tell you something about young men as one who has been one, and some of you would say I still am, but I'm talking Samson's probably in his very early 20s at this point in his life. He's definitely not matured. He's a guy driven by his passions, a guy driven by his appetites. And now he is going to marry the girl that he barely knows, but she looks good. And so now he's entering into that. And he's going to be surrounded with a bunch of other young men and put on full display right before us is going to be the stereotypical um, behavior of young men who aren't walking with God. So let's take a look at this. First of all, there's an opportunistic crew that we see that appears in verses 10 and 11. So the Bible says that Samson's father went down to the woman that Samson wanted to marry, and Samson prepared a feast there. I'm going to come back to that word feast. He prepared a feast there. That's what the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw Samson, they brought 30 companions to be with him. So remember, Samson's leaving his people group, the Israelites. He's moved into Philistine territory. He's picked a daughter of the Philistines, so he is marrying outside of his faith. Some writers made a big deal about marrying outside of his race. Let me just go ahead and slip this in. The Bible says nothing against marrying outside your race. It says something strongly against marrying outside of your faith. And so Samson has moved out of the will of God, has moved into a Philistine territory, and now the marriage has been arranged, and so they're going to throw a feast. It is a seven-day feast. He's going to do his wedding Philistine style. And the custom of the Philistines was to have a big celebration at least a week long, and the, the Bible translates, the Bible gives us this word in the English, it's called a a feast. It's very benign sounding. It just sounds like a typical wedding dinner. But the Hebrew word is the word misteh, M-I-S-T-E-H in English. And let me tell you what it's usually associated with. It's used multiple times in the Old Testament. It is always talking about a celebration, but it is um, very frequently talking about a drinking banquet. And so not untypically, not atypically, a time to celebrate. They're going to eat for seven days, but it is highly likely that the, the wine was flowing, the alcohol was moving, the young men are imbibing. And remember, one of those young men is the groom. His name is Samson. He's got a Nazarite vow on him, and part of that vow was to be he is never to touch the fruit of the vine. He's never to have alcohol. He's never to have drink. He's never to have wine. And so we see yet again, we, we can't be 100% sure, but I'm telling you, I'm pretty convinced that Samson's going down and he is indulging in this feast and he is likely drinking down there. And again, he is coming off of the Nazarite vow that's on him. This is a guy who did not think, about, think much about the calling on his life at this point. He's a guy with so much potential. He's a guy with a calling. He's a guy with an anointing. He's already killed the lion with his bare hands. And that's going to play into the riddle here in a minute. But he goes down and he sees a woman that he likes and he has a party that he wants to have. And the Bible says that 30 young men from the Philistines were brought there to celebrate with him. We'll look down to verse 12. 
it's in the context of this party, this celebration where Samson, he gives this unnecessary risk. Now watch this. The Bible says that Samson said to those 30 guys, let me put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me, you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. Now, this seems a little weird, but let me give you a little context here. The culture of that time, and especially in the Near East, is that when there were big festivals at that time, one of the party tricks, for lack of a better phrase, was that people would come and they would give riddles. They would literally, that was part of the entertainment, it was part of the show, and there would be oftentimes whoever is the, the focal point of the party, in this case Samson, would present a riddle. And so that was part of it, but Samson actually presents a riddle not just to be clever, but he presents a riddle that's got some gambling attached to it. Samson says this, hey, I'm going to put this riddle out there. Y'all want to make a bet with me? I bet you you can't answer it. If I win the bet, I, I'm going to get 30 changes of clothing. So let's put it in modern terms. I'm going to get 30 Armani suits from you guys. And if you happen to figure out what it is, I'm going to buy each of you an Armani suit and a weekend clothing also. Now, I want you to think about this. Samson has just done this risk. My opinion would be that he was probably fueled with alcohol. Y'all know how it is. Well, some of you do. Unfortunately, I do from my past. But when, when the alcohol gets flowing and you've had enough of it in you, you say things and you do things and you, you, you get bold and courageous and your inhibitions go away and you just, ultimately, it's foolishness. And so Samson's doing this, but this is what he's saying. He's literally saying to them, I'm going to buy all 30 of you a suit if I lose this bet. Well, listen, he's just gambled something he doesn't have the ability to come through on. Um, think about it in modern day terms. Think about trying to provide 30 outfits for people, boom, on a dime. And so Samson's taking a big risk here, but here's what's more important if you ask me. Samson is the God-called leader of Israel. Now, he's not walking it out, but that's his prophetic destiny. That's his assignment. But instead of being consecrated, he's living his life trying to be clever. Instead of pressing into the Lord to fulfill the assignment on his life, he's down in the Philistine territory picking out a woman, getting drunk at his own wedding, and tossing around riddles. He's literally taking this sacred thing that we're about to find out about, this thing that God did in his life, and he's turning it into this kind of casual, flippant thing. Why am I saying all of that? I remember what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the folly of young men. I'm talking about young men behaving badly. I'm talking about young men having more testosterone than they do intelligence. And, and so it's starting to play out in his life. This is very stereotypical of young men. And so look down in verse number 13, because he's surrounded by 30 other young men. And what they've got is what I'm going to just call plainly an immature cockiness. A bunch of peacocks strutting around. They said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. That reads very Shakespearean. Let me tell you what they're saying. Come on, Samson, put up or shut up. Let's hear it, man. Go ahead. You think you can trick us? You can't trick us. Go ahead. Throw us anything. We'll take you up on that bet. You better get ready to go shopping because you're going to be buying all of us a suit. So you've got these, this whole scene. Um, maybe I'm overplaying it a little bit, but I, I kind of like to enter into the text. Have you ever been around just a big group of unbridled 20-something-year-old guys 
And especially if like a, there's a keg there or something and they've, they've just done their thing and all of the arrogance comes out. All of the cockiness comes out. All of the egotistical immaturity just starts flowing out of them. That's the atmosphere that is taking place with Samson as the centerpiece. He's supposed to be God's man. Now, before we get too judgmental on him, um, I would just have to say that it is highly likely that we might want to take a moment and recognize, well, I'm God's man, not because I'm a preacher, but because Jesus lives in me. You're God's woman, not because you do what you do, but because Jesus lives in you. And it might be just a good moment to say, hey, is there anything that I'm operating in that is inconsistent with the destiny that's on my life? Is there anything that I am regularly walking in or giving myself to or producing out of my mouth or whatever? I'm not here to diagnose all of our behavioral um, need for modification, but what I am saying is this. Before we get too hard on Samson, let's just go ahead and confess that if not for the grace of God and the reliance of the Holy Spirit, we all could be operating far beneath our calling and our destiny. Amen? I don't think y'all are convinced, but I've got... 40 more minutes to convince you, amen? Let's go a little bit further. So remember the scene. Samson's made the bet. They've agreed to the bet. They haven't heard the riddle yet, but they're about to. And so we're going to talk about Samson, and I'm calling this point the blindness of a man who still had his eyes. You remember what happens to them later, right? It's not very pleasant. They spoon out his eyes later. But at this point, He still has his physical eyes, but I'm going to submit to you that he's absolutely blind. He is spiritually blind. He's not seeing what's happening around him. So follow me through these handful of verses. First of all, he is currently blind to the reality that he's living beneath his calling from God. The Bible says that he says to that group of 30 men, here comes the riddle, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. Three days go by, and they still couldn't solve the riddle. Now, if you haven't been here for the other messages, this is what Samson's referring to. When he was coming down to scout out this girl the first time, a lion ambushed Samson. He tore the lion apart. The Holy Spirit anointed Samson in a moment. Samson literally ripped that lion from piece to piece with his bare hands, and the lion died. He left it there on the roadside. He came back some days later, and a a bunch of bees had built a nest inside of the lion's carcass. Aren't you glad you came tonight? Mm. For those of you that are fasting, you're like, that doesn't sound that bad, actually. But <laughs> So the bees were in the carcass of the lion, and they had formed a large honeycomb. Samson went in, violated his Nazarite vow by touching a dead carcass of the lion, pulled the honey out, and ate it. So this amazing thing that God did in Samson's life to supernaturally anoint him, to physically tear apart that lion. That was a gift from God when it happened. That was an amazing display of God's communication to Samson. Samson, if you will walk with me, I will anoint you to do great things. It was the first recorded kind of supernatural thing that Samson did. But here we are sometime later, and Samson is taking this pearl that God gave him of supernaturally anointing him to kill the lion, and Samson is now treating it contemptuously to the point where it's now the subject of a riddle that he hopes will get him a new wardrobe. It's, do you remember when Jesus taught and he said, it's, he, he, he said, don't cast your pearls before the swine? The principle of that is this. Don't take something precious 
and valuable and put it in the presence of people who have no capacity to honor it. And so what Samson was doing here, although it was in the form of a riddle, he knew that God had given him the power to kill that lion. It should have been precious to him. It should have been a reminder as he's saying it that he is a man who has operated under the anointing of the Lord before. But none of that matters because what he's doing in the moment is he's feeding his flesh. He's, he's about to get married. My opinion is, is that they got the wine flowing. He's got a bunch of people making him the center of attention. And he takes this precious thing that was just between him and God and he casts that pearl before the swine. And really, that one thing is going to set in motion everything that happens throughout the rest of Samson's life. It's this one moment where Samson flippantly handles the supernatural testimony of what God did through him, and that is the first domino that falls that begins to move all of the other dominoes, which eventually lead to Samson's death. Now, I don't know exactly how to apply that. I want to go first into verse number 15. And beyond the fact that he was blind to living beneath his calling, he's now blind to the trouble that he had stirred up with what he just did. Verse 15. So on the fourth day where they can't figure out the riddle, they've only got seven days to do it. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice or seduce your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. And then they ask the question, have you invited us here to this wedding in order to break our bank account, in order to impoverish us? They're realizing four days in, we can't figure out the riddle. We agreed to it. And now if they don't figure it out, they're going to have to come up, each of them, with a, a set of clothes. That may not sound like much to you, but remember back in ancient days, you know, you, you didn't have Macy's or Walmart or wherever you might go to get your stuff. You, you typically had one set of clothing and you wore it until you couldn't be modest in it anymore because it had holes in it and it would fall off of you. So this is a big deal. And so these men are saying to Samson's wife, hey, we've tried to figure this out. But hey, sister, you're from our hometown. He's a foreigner. He's a Jew. You're from our hometown. I want to tell you something. We're not going to be able to afford to buy him all that stuff, so I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. You're going to seduce him in some way. Use your women, womanly wiles, but you find out what the answer to that riddle is, and you tell us. And by the way, if you don't tell us, we're going to burn you alive, and we're going to burn your father's household alive. The, the, the statement is not just the house, it's the family. So literally, this is what Samson has started. This is the results of recklessness. He has started something in motion that now has the potential to bring death to his wife and her whole family. Now, you may think that they're overstating their case. Read chapter 15, because they kill her and her father. They actually end up doing it for a different reason that comes on the heels of what we'll talk about next week. But this is what's blowing my mind on this. So Samson has set in motion this thing, and he has no clue. He has no clue that there's now a bounty on his wife and her dad and her whatever family they have if she does not seduce from Samson the information that will solve the riddle. So go a little further with me. Here's a big blindness, and Samson is not the first nor the last man to be blind to this. What am I talking about? The manipulation of a woman. Look in verse number 16. Samson's wife, I'm going to be a little dramatic with this. Y'all can laugh if you want, but I'm not altogether joking. But Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. 
You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, chill, baby. No, he said, <laughs> he said, behold, I've not told my mother and my father and am I going to tell you? And watch this, verse 17. She wept before him in the seven days that their feast lasted and on the seventh day he told her. Why? Because she pressed him hard. If you write in your Bible, write the word nag right there in the column of your Bible. So she got it out of him, and the next statement says, then she went and told her people. Now, let me just tell you something. There's a lot of things that we're blind to when we're walking in the flesh. Just very, very quickly. You can't see true kingdom realities when you're walking in the flesh. You can't see them. They're happening all around you. You cannot see them when you are daily walking in your flesh. You also can't see the work of the enemy around you. Samson didn't know those guys were doing what they were doing. Why? He's walking in his flesh. If he's walking in the spirit, A, he never would have been down there in the first place. But B, if um, he had gotten down there and started walking in the spirit, he would have recognized immediately, okay, these guys are conspiring against me. But when you're walking in the flesh, you don't see what the enemy's doing. You're actually cooperating with the enemy when you walk in the flesh because you can't see kingdom realities that you need to see and you can't see the dark kingdom coming against you, which you also need to see. When you walk in the flesh, by the way, you can't see that you're walking in the flesh. That's one of the hardest parts about walking in the flesh is that you don't know while you're walking in the flesh that you're walking in the flesh. Guess what? Somebody's got to get up in your face and tell you. And even then, if you're really walking the flesh, you're not going to listen to them. So what usually happens is God brings down the hammer of discipline. And then when you're kind of laying in a puddle somewhere repenting, you start saying, oh, I've been walking in the flesh. But you can't see it until that happens. When you walk in the flesh, you also don't see the warning signs that God is sending to you. Because God will send us warning signs when we're walking in the flesh, but we can't see them if we don't break out of that. And for Samson, and for all of us really, when you're walking in the flesh, you, you never see the price that you're about to pay until it's usually too late. So Samson wasn't seeing any of this, and he definitely wasn't seeing the fact that this woman was doing what a million other women have done to dumb men. What was it? She is using her emotional ability to bring him to a place of brokenness. Ladies, let me tell you something. You are actually an incredibly, I'm, I'm going to talk to Christian women here for a moment specifically. You're actually an incredib incredibly powerful person. You have Jesus Christ living inside of you. You have giftedness, spiritual gifts, and natural giftedness. You have some things that most men do not have. I don't have time to elucidate all of those things right now, but God gives his daughter stuff that he says no to concerning his sons. One of those powers that you have is influence. You have a different type of influence than most men have. Now, here's the challenge for you. You can use that influence to construct, to accomplish holy purposes, to serve others, to better others, to bring glory to God. But if you get in the flesh, you will take that same skill set and you'll manipulate. And guys, we are usually the blind victims. 
I will tell you this, and if any, listen, I had three sisters, a stepmother, a mother. I have a wife and a daughter. So I've been talking to women my whole life. And as they're honest, they often will say this, Jeff, every woman knows how to manipulate a man if she wants to. Ladies are afraid to say amen. (laughs) If you want to, you know how to do it. And unfortunately, a lot of men don't see it. Let me convince you. How many, don't say amen because it would be embarrassing for all of us, but how many of you ladies know all you've got to do is stroke the guy's ego and you're going to get something that you want a little bit down the road? That's typically the way it works. Sometimes it's sexual manipulation or sensual manipulation, flirting or, or, or anything that might tantalize a guy like Samson or any guy by, by the eyes. And so she's getting in there, but it doesn't work immediately. Samson's hanging in there go Sammy I mean he is really hanging in there for a few days and it gets down to the end of it and the Bible says the Bible says that he finally broke on the seventh day man he was like right there at the finish line and he breaks why because she pressed him so hard folks she nagged him to the point where he said enough and he told her what the answer to the riddle was And what does she do? Uh, She saves her life, saves the life of her father, saves the life of anybody else that was in their household by telling the guys that had threatened her with death if she didn't give them the answer. Do you see how messed up all of this is? It's incredible to me. Remember the key phrase of the book of Judges is everybody was doing that which was right in their own eyes. Very much like 21st century United States of America. And so we're looking at this, but I hope we're not just doing a history lesson. I want us to recognize that we're living in this same kind of culture. We're surrounded by the same type of environment and the same spirit of the age where everybody thinks that their opinion, their statements, their desires are supreme. And therefore, we've got a a nation full of people who are living for themselves and demanding others to get out of the way so they can continue to exalt themselves, whether it be individuals or people groups or whatever. We live in a nation very much like this. And so let's learn from this. I don't want to be Samson, not in the case of his weaknesses. I I don't want any of the daughters of God to operate like this woman or like Delilah is going to do. And I certainly don't want any of the men that are in the kingdom to be so evil that they would literally be willing to kill somebody in order to get what they want. And yet all of that is going on in just 10 verses in Judges 14. So go down to verse number 18. Samson was also blind to the cost of his gamble. What am I talking about? Verse number 18. The men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down. So here they're coming to him with the answer to his riddle. What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, Samson did. This is terrible. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. So just some quick counseling for the men in the room. Never say that. Never, ever, ever use the word heifer to refer to any woman, but especially not your wife while you're talking to other guys. All joking aside, he knew immediately that when he had released that word to his wife that same day that she had betrayed him. This is his brand new wife. 
He had been deceived. He had been betrayed, but it was all his fault. So right now, let me tell you what Samson's, what's coursing through his veins. Hot rage, humiliation, deep pain at having been betrayed by his wife to a bunch of other men, and then the sobering awareness that what's incredible in all of this is though he's so often operating in his flesh, Samson knows he's got to keep his word. He's actually got to deliver on the bet. And so all of a sudden, he's recognizing, I've got to do all of this. But even in that moment where everything that he initially went down to that city to accomplish has now fallen through his hands, and the woman that should have, the woman that he longed for, the woman that he begged his parents to let him marry, the woman that had caught his eye and in some degree won his heart, now all he sees as, her as is the one who betrayed him to the extent that he insults her by calling her a cow. It's a terrible scene. I told you I wasn't going to be able to encourage you with much tonight. But guys, sometimes in order for us to really long for the beauty and the brilliance and the holiness and the glory of what it means to walk in Jesus and actually live out our faith. Sometimes one of the most um, uh, productive ways to acknowledge that is to show you what it looks like without him. What does it look like without Jesus? What does it look like in the flesh? What does it look like when your enemy's got the upper hand? What does it look like when you're walking blindly through this life when you don't have to? Well, it looks like Samson in this chapter of his life. And so when, when I go through this, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to beat up on Samson, but the Holy Spirit didn't go out of his way to cover up Samson's flaws. So I'm not going to try to do something the Holy Spirit didn't do. The Holy Spirit puts all of that stuff out there. But remember, these things that happened in hi biblical history are there for our learning and our instruction. So when we're thinking about these things, if I'm a woman in the room, I'm, I'm thinking, I don't want to be manipulative. If I'm a young man in the room, I'm thinking, I don't want to be a slave to my eyes or a fool or arrogant or brash or given myself to drunkenness. And if I'm a, I'm, I'm a person in the kingdom, whether male or female, but I have a, a destiny that I know about or a calling that I know about, I don't want to be one who treats it like throwing pearls before pigs. So this, this, it's kind of inverted instruction. It's not showing us how to do something good. It's, show, it's exposing how to, how to stay away from what is bad. Maybe it's not as encouraging or it's not as popular, but I think it accomplishes the same point. How many of you know, y'all just, y'all flow with me here for a minute. How many of you know that in the kingdom, whether you're sharing your faith or talking about the kingdom with somebody at work or in your family or at school, or whether you're a teacher or a preacher or somebody that has a ministry where you communicate, how many of you recognize that we can't always just hunker down on the happy stuff? You know, I call it like, I wrote a blog about that yesterday, today, one day recently, and, and talk about molasses evangelism, where everything's sweet, everything's sugary, everything's smooth. You can do that, but you can't do that and stay aligned with what Scripture reveals. Sometimes, friends, we need the gospel. We need the Word of God. When, when the Bible says it's a sword and it cuts, well, that's what's going to happen to us sometimes. 
And so sometimes we need the Holy Spirit to raise up somebody in our life that'll not only encourage us and bless us and prophesy over us and do all of those awesome things that build us up, but sometimes, friends, I'm just going to say it later, sometimes we need a spanking. Y'all are not feeling it tonight, but I'm just going to preach it anyway. Sometimes we need somebody, either the Lord or a, a brother or sister in Christ, to just get, get right up in us and, and say, hey, you are not walking according to the worthiness of your calling. You're not living in a manner that reflects the glory of Jesus Christ. You're living beneath your destiny. You're living beneath what you have been entrusted with in the riches of the gospel through Jesus Christ. I mean, every now and then, listen, I, I'll, I'll tell you this. There have been times in my life and my family where I was, Samson, I was blind. And I wasn't seeing how I was doing. And my sweet, tender, submissive, lovely wife says to me, you're in your flesh right now and you can't see it. I'm like, how dare you? And an hour or two later, I'm repenting because she's exactly right. Sometimes we have to call each other out on these things, not because we're mean, not because we're vindictive, not because we're holier than thou or we're judging, but because we love one another. And there's not a parent in here or a grandparent in here or a spouse in here that wants to see somebody, either a kid or a grandchild or, or, or their spouse. We don't want to see anybody that we love deeply fall off the cliff of behavior when we could have told them, look out, you're about to go over. We want to be able to say to them, hey, we love you enough to risk your comfort in the moment in order that we might help you secure your consecration forever. And so Samson, he didn't have anybody doing that in his life. He was a self-sufficient man. It's amazing to me, he's the only judge in Israel that never actually led the people. He, he never led a battle. He, he worked in his whole life story. Everything he did, he did by himself. Everything. You look at the lives of the other judges, they're constantly uh, rallying people and, and motivating people, not Samson. Samson was an island. He was a rock. He wanted to do it all by himself. And ultimately, he's the only judge that we see consistently from almost the beginning to the end who was always walking in the flesh. It's what happens. A very quick word here. Dustin actually referred to it earlier. It had not occurred to me to even say this tonight, but I think it, it, it's, it's important to say. You're not supposed to do your Christianity alone. You know, one of, the, one of the, the hardest things about having a television ministry and a media ministry is I know that there are people that will watch it and they'll sit at home and they're perfectly capable of getting up and going to be a part of a local church somewhere, but they got wounded and they got hurt and now it's just them and Jesus and the TV preacher and their Bible. And, and, and that's one of the dangers of that. And I would just say, if there's anybody that's going to be watching this later on, if that's you, listen, you're supposed to be connected to people. We're supposed to be walking this out together. I'm just going to go ahead and go out on a limb here. This has nothing to do with Judges 14. I need you. I need you in my life. I need the body of Christ. I'm not sufficient apart from the body of Christ. The me and Jesus kind of paradigm is unbiblical. It's wrong. It is sinful. 
It is literally the byproduct of an independent, individualistic American spirit that simply says, I don't need anybody else. And it is foreign to what the scripture reveals. We need each other. And, and there's no more apparent uh, display of when we need each other than when there is a bottoming out in somebody's life like Samson. Every man that I have known in ministry that has morally imploded, it happened after a season where he isolated himself from his other brothers. Every single one of them, without fail. This can't continue to happen in our lives. It's not only simply avoiding what is wrong, but we are so much stronger when we are unified and walking it out in oneness together. Koinonia, doing life together. So let's go down to the last point. You're going to get out a little bit early tonight. Just a little bit. Look at the ugly harvest from his careless seed. Samson had just been throwing careless seed and here comes the harvest. Let me preface all of what I'm about to say by saying this. Samson experienced grace. The Bible says, and the Holy, excuse me, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. It makes no sense to me. Re read the verse before, or all the verses before. Basically, it is Samson bottoming out, and then we get to this verse, and it says, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him. I don't know how that aligns itself with your expectations from God. He's, he is so committed to his own glory. That's what we're dealing with here. He's not endorsing Samson's behavior. So this is not a license for us to go out and be reckless and foolish with our lives and then expect God to just always bless us. That is also not biblical. But what we're seeing here is that Samson was the person, the human that God was going to use to begin to bring defeat to the Philistines. And God had already made up his mind. God had already called Samson. God had already decreed that Samson would be the one to start bringing defeat to the Philistines. Samson wasn't cooperating with the process, but I'm just gonna go ahead and remind us, when God makes up his mind to do so, he's not gonna let a single person stand in the way. And so he's showing himself as sovereign. That's a word that we need to reintroduce to our theology and our vocabularies. God is sovereign. Listen, I'm not being a nitpicker here, maybe a little bit, but forgive me if you will. When we pray, listen, this is just a pet peeve of mine. God, we give you permission to, that's an illegal prayer. <clears throat> Foul, red card. God never asked for permission. Do you know who we give permission to? People that are uh, subordinate to us. So I can give my son permission. He's 13. I can give him permission to do things. But I can't give God permission. You know why? Because he ain't asking. So just to help you out a little bit, don't be offended if you've prayed that. I'm not, I'm not you know, stalking your prayer life or anything. But I'm just saying, here's a more honorable way to say it. Uh, Lord, we welcome you to do this. Instead of... Uh, Lord, we give you permission to move in this place. God chuckles. He says, well, that's, that's pretty cute. Yeah, because I wasn't asking. But we can also communicate our desire for him to do that by saying, Lord, we welcome you to move. Lord, we look for you to move. Samson is finding out that God didn't need him. God loved him. And God was going to use him. 
But in order to accomplish God's purposes, God was willing to anoint with the Holy Spirit the man whose life was falling apart. See, in this passage, friends, Samson did something stupid. The 30 men did something evil. The woman, did so his wife, did something deceptive. And God did something surprising. It's just amazing to me. I think it's just so important for us to remember that, that um, God plays by God's rules, and there, he, he always does what is right. Even when it's confusing to a guy like me who's sitting here saying, Lord, I, I don't know why you did that. Why didn't you pick somebody else? Why didn't you find somebody faithful in Israel? And the answer he would send to me is like, well, Jeff, because I'm God and you're not, now be quiet. That's basically the answer. My ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So go down into verse number 19 at the end of it. So he experienced this grace. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. Look what he does. He went down to Ashkelon, which is another Philistine territory, a city, and he strikes down. That's being polite. The Hebrew indicates he killed them. He killed 30 men of that town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. So Ashkelon is about 25 miles southwest down to the coast of the territory where the wedding was. So the Spirit of the Lord hits Samson and stays upon him long enough to travel 25 miles on foot, go into Ashkelon, and kill 30 people, 30 men, take the clothes off of those 30 men, and bring them all the way back up to where the wedding guys are saying, man, I can't wait to get my suit. I can't wait to get my wingtip shoes. I cannot wait to get me a pocket silk. Man, this is going to be awesome. And Samson comes up with 30 changes of clothes that probably had tons of blood all over them because the guys that were wearing them just got slain by Samson. And he throws them out there. Now, here, I'm going to mess with your theology a little bit. I've already kind of wrecked this message, so let me just have a little fun with you. Amen? This doesn't seem right, does it? The Spirit of the Lord fell upon Samson, and under the anointing, he killed 30 people. We want to say, <clears throat> I protest, but we would say that only if we detach what, that ha what happened there from the overall context. Who are the Philistines? They are the polytheistic, pagan, brutal oppressors of the seed of Abraham. They are the ones coming up against Yahweh, the only true God who has made covenant with Israel. They've been oppressing Israel for 40 years. That God has been watching 40 years of all sorts of vice and violence and vileness coming against his apple of his eye, Israel, from the Philistines. And God had already decreed the Philistines are going to be destroyed. And so he also decreed, and Samson's going to get that ball rolling. By the way, David would ultimately be the one who finally eradicated the Philistines, but it started with Samson. And so when Samson is going down there, though I believe that Samson's probably, though he's under an anointing, I think best we can tell in the scripture, Samson's also operating in just a lot of human anger towards what's happened to him, but God is using a flawed hero. And he takes, he takes Samson down there, and Samson begins to do it. This violence that happens is the official beginning 
of the war against the Philistines by God's people that ultimately King David in his glorious kingdom would bring to a fruition and a culmination. Samson started it. So it doesn't look right to me and you, but we just have to recognize that God is not some pacifist. That literally, the Bible actually says the Lord is a man of war. Did you know that's in your Bible? And so God's not, you know, a, you know, oh, I got to be careful here. (sighs) Yeah, just let it remain what I said. I almost got myself in trouble, but thank you, Holy Spirit. You are awesome. So Samson reclaims the dominance, and so he goes down and he destroys these people, and um, he brings the clothing back up. But notice the end of verse number 19. After all that is done, we see again that he's still being mastered by his flesh. In hot anger, in wrath, he went back to his father's house. So he dumps the clothes off, he leaves his wife's village, And he goes back home to the mother and father who never wanted him to go back down to that territory in the first place. Isn't that amazing? Let me just speak to those that are young in the room. Because you go through this phase when you're young and you think your parents are dumb. And you you think that they're so out of touch. And, you know, every parent that's had a teenager has experienced the eye rolling. And that's the adolescent way of communicating, mom, dad, you're, you're an idiot. That's just a phase they go through. And even into your 20s, when you get a little bit of freedom, and now you're going to be rolling this, it's very interesting to me that after that proud young person who thinks mom and dad are dumb and that they know everything as a proud young person, when God humbles that young person, they often end up doing what Samson did, going back home to mom and dad, going back home with their tail between their legs. And it's an awesome thing. And wise Christian parents will pray for their kids when they're proud and pray for their kids when they think that mom and dad are done and just wait on the Lord to humble them. He's going to humble your kids or your grandkids. He's going to do it. You won't be the only Christian parent that God does not humble those kids. He will humble them at some point. And one of the most awesome things that, that has happened in my own testimony is when, when I got saved and just during those first couple of years of salvation, I was now able to see everything that my parents were trying to do for me when I was younger and wayward. And all of a sudden, my dad became like a genius. I'm thinking, you're the smartest man that has ever walked the planet. How did I miss it? Well, what happened? The proud get humbled. God gives enlightenment. And perspective comes. And young men don't stay foolish young men forever. And that's what was beginning to happen for Samson. But he does go back home in the flesh. And it's very interesting, again, that you know, God harnessed Samson's personal anger to begin to bring national deliverance to Israel. He doesn't just use your strengths, he uses your weaknesses. That's not an excuse for us to continue in weakness, but it is a reassurance that your weaknesses cannot thwart the plan of God. Verse 20, and we're done. And Samson's wife was given to his best man. That is a bad day. That, listen, think about this with me. So this whole episode revolved around Samson's determination that he was going to have himself that woman. She was going to be his. And then after all of the the planning, after all of the partying, after all of the riddling, after all of the humiliation of losing the riddle, 
After all of the violence, Samson goes home with nothing. Nothing. He was O for the season. I want you to remember this as we close. That is always the fruit of the flesh. In my flesh there dwelleth no good thing. We are not called to sanctify our flesh. You can't. We're called to crucify it. Jesus looked at every single one of us when we came to him. And he said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. And then he added this. Anyone who will not pick up their cross cannot be my disciple. Literally, Jesus calls us unto eternal life, but the whole pathway as we move towards the fulfillment, the climax of eternal life, which is glorification, the whole pathway is a call to die to lesser loyalties. We die to those things that pull at us, that tempt us, that demand from us, that distract us. Notice this. Jesus said, you pick up the cross. It's yours. You follow me. And what's amazing is when you pick up that cross and you begin to follow him, you find this other reality comes to pass. Oh, this cross, yes, it's a burden, but man, his yoke is easy. His burden is, is light. Why is that? Because what you find out is as you pick up your cross and you carry it, he's carrying it with you. So friends, we can literally walk in the Spirit to such a degree that though we're always aware, Paul said we are always dying. You remember when he told that at the church at Rome? We are always dying. There is an aspect of the Christian life where we are always dying to lesser loyalties and lesser things. But every time we are dying to something and experiencing that death, it's what we sang tonight, on the back end of that is a resurrection. And so tonight, for the joy set before you, be like Jesus. Endure the cross, despise the shameful aspects of it, but for the joy set before you, let's keep walking this out. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet tonight. So bow your heads. I don't normally do this, but I have two minutes. Father, I just ask you to show each of us at least one thing that you are not suggesting, but calling us to die to. You're Lord, you have that right, and you're also Father, so we know it's good for us. Command a death to that thing that you're calling us to die to. Just command it, Lord. And if the Lord has brought something to your mind in this moment, Lord, if just take the moment, Lord, show each of us something. Look at it as an invitation. Don't run from it. It's an invitation to victory. So by faith, say, yes, Lord, I accept the call to die to that. 
and then declare, Lord, by faith, I believe there's a victory, a resurrection on the other side of me completely dying to this thing. In Jesus' name, amen.